0: So I've been thinking about uh, planning for some time this summer to do a sort of podcast episode that is basically me in front of a microphone and just talking
1: for as long as I can. So it'd be like every one of our phone calls. All right. Um, I'm sorry. Continue.
0: And so so to make it even more exciting, I think I want to uh, do it with a British accent the whole time. So this is a pretty um, avant-garde
1: idea, huh?
0: Well, I appreciate the compliment. Um, if it was a compliment, I
1: think you're describing something that would probably cause hyperinflation. <laughs> from how like weird and excessive it is, especially if the taxpayer were to get involved.
0: Well, that's me. I'm a I'm a burden on the taxpayer. We can't have accents. We can't have accents. Accents are superstructure.
1: Yeah, Yeah, so and we, I think, wanted to talk about this idea of, I mean, you know, accents are superstructure, you know, all of these things, whether it's, you know, art media, culture, and law, and money, of course, um, all of these things in the kind of traditional Marxist-based superstructure dichotomy are superstructure, right? They're they're excess, they're superfluous, they aren't grounded at anything, they're just these ephemeral forms that aren't productive of anything. And uh, the other half of that equation, we've been focusing a lot on, you know, the sort of Narrative of cultural decadence, right? And of a cultural degeneration and a cultural debasement that seems to be implicit in this idea that there's a material working class base that is, you know, normal as opposed to or as opposed to, you know, anything that is on the margins as, a, as opposed to the majority. I think that on the, on the economic end of it, right, this, this always tends to map onto inflation. And I wanted in this episode for us to talk about a couple of conventional narratives, both in conventional mainstream pop history, but also conventional narratives on the left of two inflationary moments in American history and what are sort of seen as the political and electoral stakes at the time, and what kind of cultural dog-whistly things and racial dog-whistly things you, you tend to hear alongside these. This is also something that I wanted to talk to you about. You know, you did your master's thesis on... Basically, the cultural and movie aesthetics of Weimar Germany during and leading up to hyperinflation, and the kind of relationship between that and, and fascism. Yeah,
0: and um, it's interesting the way I think to to get into this perhaps is to like talk about what the traditional narrative of Weimar hyperinflation is in in this sort of imaginary. Of, like, a pop history, and you know, MMTers will know, like, quite well what this is because it's what gets thrown against arguments for using the abundant capacity of money to pay for good things, right? Uh, first and foremost, right? We can't afford that because if you print money, well, immediately the bathtub is going to overflow and. Um, we are going to have all this inflated currency that's going to be worthless. And we're going to be just like the poor Weimar work- workers taking wheelbarrows full of money to buy bread. Mm-hmm. And so I guess to start, right, like, let's think just to take a trip back in time. Let's think about the end of World War One.
1: I thought you were gonna say back last year when Doug Henwood wrote his uh, article about MMT. Well,
0: we'll zoom forward back to last year. I'm sure at some point.
1: No, but we'll start with uh, World War One. That seems like it's probably a little bit more important. Well,
0: you know, it's all relative, because um, <laughs> we're post-structuralists. Um, no,
1: <laughs> so right. So the
0: obviously the end of World War One happens, and it's a sort of calamitous moment for all of Europe and. There is the uh, Spanish flu shout out to the COVID crisis Mm -hmm. and this sort of German socialist resurgence and the short lived communist revolution and all of the shenanigans at the beginning between social democracy versus actual proper revolution and Rosa Luxemburg gets assassinated and all of these like tumultuous moments in the Mm -hmm. history of the left. And, but what, you know, what comes of it, of course, is the Weimar Republic which is this sort of, you know, experimental, democratic, and experimental in not just a, like, political sense, but also, like, this cultural, this, this realm of cultural experimentation and site for, like, this great, like, flocking to Germany among many different areas of, of Europe. Out of the rubble and out of the calamity of of the war, and political economically speaking, we can read Keynes's "The Economic Consequences of the Peace" that talks about the way the uh, the treaty at Versailles and the war debts really sets up uh, Germany for a real struggle as it comes to uh, any sense of economic agency. Right. Um. And and. It's really uh, a crucial lever for punishing Germany for being responsible, so-called, right, as was the Allies line, totally for World War One. Mm-hmm. And as a result of this, you know, war debts, literal occupation in some instances, uh, worker uprisings across the country, destruction of vital infrastructure and in- industry and production... All of these things sort of come to a head in sort of the great unraveling of German productive capacity and economic agency leads to the hyperinflation in which the currency becomes effectively a, a sort of signification of the political ineffectuality, right, that, that is the result of the congruence of all of these forces of external pressure versus internal pressure, versus a sort of calamitous sort of management of these sorts of institutions of productive capacity as a direct result of of, uh, war destruction. And so, like, to leave the very specifics of that aside, right, that's not necessarily what we're interested in here too much. Mm -hmm. Essentially, right, what occurs is you have this sort of totalizing, signifying moment of hyperinflation that becomes this sort of signification for the excesses of political governance, of cultural governance that affords experimentation. And, you know, thinking about the 20s in this context, not just in the American context where we have like the roaring 20s, but also in the Weimar context where there is all of this Queer experimentation and sort of promiscuous behavior, both like at the level of jazz and art, but also at the level of interactions and sexual interactions and right. and all of these sorts of things. The, the inauguration of nightlife, the, the tr- tremendous presence of of sort of young adult um, Jews who flock to Berlin uh, from places like Vienna or Hungary or throughout Germany to live sort of culturally rich lives and and sort of arrive into this new modern, modernist uh, Central European moment. The intersection of these things in art, in cinema, in literature is profoundly important for the history of the early 20th century, uh, what ends up becoming the sort of long 20th century of modernism as you know coming out of the bourgeois 19th century and it becomes this site for an imaginary of excess and surplus and aesthetics and a real like challenge against the sort of rote materialisms of the more eastern orthodox marxist political institutions that we have, you know, with the Soviet Union. Right. That's sort of a, a sort of more simplistic introduction to what the the sort of German moment of aesthetic theory that is sort of crowned with the Frankfurt School and Adorno and Horkheimer and Benjamin and, and all of these uh, aesthetic theorists. But I think what we're trying to do is really take that history and sort of locate a very particular trend in how we talk about inflation throughout time mm-hmm. in the cultural role and sort of superstructural excesses, so-called, that are associated with the material excesses of inflation, to use the this, this sort of Marxian uh, narrative.
1: Right. So there would be a lot of ways to kind of, you know, begin uh, unpicking this, but one that comes to mind with what you were saying at the end with the Frankfurt school is, you know, it kind of it makes me think of how, you know, these these very, you know, like Anglo Marxist theorists and and also Soviet bloc, you know, like, you know, tankies, right? Like people um view this uh, you know, this this Frankfurt school of Marxists who are taking on Aesthetic critique and aesthetic criticism uh, Because, I mean, we call the podcast Superstructure, you know, and You know, kind of Reflexively, because It is A term of derision For this kind of cultural Analysis, and for What You know, people who were looking on To what was happening in Germany In, you know, kind of Eastern uh, Marxist um, you know, kind of political formations, we're thinking, as well as what eventually the Nazis, um, you know, kind of, kind of say, because the, I think the other thing that you're getting at here is that this, this period of experimentation, right, and of quote, unquote, promiscuity, Right. Of Mm -hmm. debauchery, you know, like all of these these kinds of words that, you know, imply a kind of a, a degradation of something that is, you know, kind of a traditional base. Right. Like of what for the Nazis is, you know, a kind of an ethno nationalist substance that is being watered down. But in political economy terms, they mean the same thing. About inflation and like the kind of conventional narrative is the Weimar Republic, instead of doing productive things, they printed money, right? Mm -hmm. And side by side with this debasement of the sort of ethno-nationalistic German culture and traditional roles for people in society that for the Nazis and for, you know, conservative elements in Germany before the Nazis seemed to be self-evidently productive, they are, you know, basically seen as being debased in the same way that the money supply, quote unquote, is being debased. Is is that it? It represents the fact that for Marxism, the superstructure—money, law, culture, language, media, words—all of these things that are racially coded as Jewish, not coincidentally, have no theoretical role to play, except as a kind of a demobilizing afterthought, right? That is this kind of passive, you know, like, literally, we call it media, right? Is that it's, it's a medium of, you know, money is a medium of exchange, you know, and media in general, it just it passively mediates, right? And it has the potential to, distract us right and make us confuse its passive mediation for something actually productive and that idea of media and of superstructure as having no material substance um this shows what the link is between this idea that printing money is debasing the economy and printing New social roles, mm-hmm. right? New social forms, inventing modes of living. You know, redefining what masculinity and femininity are. You know, you hear today, people will make these same appeals about how you know people who are transgender or non-binary are trying to use language and words to debase a material, biological reality, right? And they, but they can't actually change it. And so, in in a certain sense, I mean, this is what the inflation narrative is, is arguing. And so it's, it's no coincidence that all of the Nazi propaganda, you can find these, you know, posters of some person, you know, it will say like, your, you know, family member who has some disability is costing this much money to the German taxpayer every year, Mm -hmm. you know, and and this was supposed to essentially support eugenics and forced sterilizations, people who are not part of the ethno-nationalist, and economic base, and when I say ethno-nationalist and economic, I mean that this kind of naturalization of the economy as this sort of objective, you know, like things that are obviously productive versus things that are obviously unproductive. Really, you know, we're saying that art, is not productive. Certainly not compared to working in a factory or making food or something, right? So like education- It it
0: becomes make work.
1: It becomes make work, exactly. You know, there's this kind of imagined objective output that shouldn't be controversial, you know, which and they will appeal to like food and housing, basically. Um, And then everything above that is fair game for otherizing as being potentially inflationary because it costs money to make- but it's unproductive.
0: Because it's not socially necessary, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's to, to use Marx's term, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's this very concrete idea of the people, abstractly, right? Like whenever you hear hear appeals made in the bellows, for example, to normal working class people, as opposed to working class people, and then queer people, and then, you know, all these other things that are, you know, supposedly on the outside.
0: Yeah. And another way, I I think, of getting up this mountain is to think, like, specifically about how then, like, inflation became literally a boogeyman, like a specter, a ghost, Mm -hmm. in the sort of aesthetic imaginary of Weimar. It became, and like, to turn the screw one more it became this superfluous yet materially invasive agent mm. of destruction. Right. And so, right, in the, and this is where, like, the, the Marxian imaginary, like, turns over, right? Where, oh, law and culture and media, they're all superfluous. They're a distraction from material politics. But they're also potent. Mm-hmm. And so they as superfluousness, turn back around and materially inscribe themselves onto the base mm-hmm. and become then the problem that needs to be excised and literally become a ghost that haunt, that is haunting structures of political economy and relation that are desired, right? These sort of orthodox structures of the gender binary and production as a sort of unmediated process amongst so-called man and nature right and traditional forms of marriage and traditional forms of sexual relationality and all these different things that are posited as normal Mm -hmm. versus excessive or promiscuous
1: things that are coded as as vices right as as things that are natural you know we will naturally be tempted to engage in, you know, postmodern cultural Marxism, whatever, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Th- there will always be those temptations, but we must, if you're like an alt right person or crypto fascist or something like that, you know, it's, you know, we have to preserve the kind of traditional ethno nationalist substance. But if you're a mainstream economist, you know, that means we have to preserve the productive parts of the economy and not give in to the temptations of funding unproductive things, of of being promiscuous with our money, yeah. right? Of having a loose monetary policy.
0: Literally, yeah, yeah. Of being doves, right? Like, rather yeah. than hawks, right? And that's sort of the way these aesthetics are sort of, are, are playing out in the present and then also, like, throughout the memory of the past and which is... It's no wonder then that like Hitler comes storming in to uh, German politics doing, you know, lamenting the treaty at Versailles, lamenting the so-called cultural degeneration of the Jews who are seen as like not only as capital, but Mm -hmm. as excess and as cultural excess, and they're these right. artists, and they're promiscuous, and they, blo- and they're dirty, and they're they're vice laden, right? These are the signifiers that end up being added to and and applied to the the fascist imaginary of a sort of ethno nationalist substance, as you suggested, and essentially, right, like Jews and queers and the promiscuous they are inflationary they become inflationary to the fascist mind mm-hmm. and that's what we're trying to get at here in understanding surplus in previous episodes we've we've sort of in in episode 6 of superstructure where we talk about fred lee and in our beyond the bellows episode we really try and redefine what surplus is meant to imply and really embrace this sort of sense of surplus and excess as the additive function of collective production and embrace all cultural surplus as well as the as the sort of site of politics, right? We're all fighting over how we want to organize this, this surplus rather than giving in to the imagination of surplus as a vampire that sucks the blood Mm -hmm. from a normal substantial base. Right. I mean, and, and the, the dog whistles to both the imagination of, of a Jewish vampire. And then also of like a succubus as this feminine agent that destroys sort of this sort of sense of masculine uh, strength and order and iron. And so, to really paint that picture of all of that as the sort of imaginary aesthetics of inflation, I think it could be useful now to maybe move into to one example in the present of how this gets mobilized before then we talk about the American experience of the 20th century. and and of stagflation
1: in preparation for this episode i was doing what i always do in preparation for these episodes which was i was looking for keywords plus jacobin magazine
0: (laughs) where'd they teach you that method by the way this
1: is the frankfurt school So this is an article uh, from Christian Parenti and Dante Dallavalle, uh, which is called Wall Street is High on Government Supply.
0: Oh, yeah. Give it to me.
1: Yeah. And so this is um, I think that we're going to talk later about the stagflation of the 1970s. But I think that the main trope that you see in left wing economic commentary is. Uh, Since the 2008 crisis, it's sort of, it still follows the shape of there being a real base that is being debased and watered down and siphoned away from by this external, you know, floating sector. Uh, but, you know, in, in this case, since the crash of 2008, we've had growth, but it's been fake growth, right? It's been zombie growth. <laughs> uh, now, I'm not kidding with the with the zombie thing. Um, this is this is a, uh, a subheading from this article that is called zombie firms and mounting corporate debt. So at the level of individual firms, this tsunami of money encouraged new rounds of dangerous borrowing. Since the financial crisis, corporate debt has swelled to record levels. Over $10 trillion, equal to 48% of GDP. Companies haven't been this heavily leveraged since 2009 at the depth of the crisis. In January, the New York Fed reported that only two U.S. companies, Johnson & Johnson and Microsoft, still carry uh, AAA ratings.
0: Under Jacobin social democracy, it's important that corporations have AAA ratings.
1: <laughs> they they have to because all the corporations are publicly owned. So they need to all be creditworthy. We
0: need to make sure Standard & Poor's uh, stamps socialism with its endorsement.
1: <laughs> yeah. So like this whole article, basically it, You know, I I just use the zombie thing, which is one trope, but the other trope that they use is this idea of printing money, of quantitative easing, which is the only way that they can imagine creating money, as, you know, this, like, substance abuse, right? Like (laughs) Like, it's this metaphor of a junkie, so... Um, With one hand, Wall Street borrows from the Federal Reserve at effectively 0% interest. Then with the other hand, Wall Street loans that money back to the government, buying treasury bonds at about 1%. This so-called carry trade started, like many addictions, as a form of emergency medicine. Now markets, like junkies without a fix, are sick, and the only way they can get right is another injection of government cash. And so, injecting liquidity, right, like pumping up the the prices. It's just the only thing that money can do in this situation is provide this kind of cheap high that will then, you know, create indebtedness, right? And so the, the only role that the surplus, right, that the superstructure, you know, in this case money, envisioned only as private debt, you know, from banks, um, the only role that it has is inflating asset prices above what they're actually worth and creating private debt that is greater than the economy's ability to pay that debt. Uh, another person that comes to mind here is Michael Hudson, who I learned a lot early on about political economy from Michael Hudson. I'm still, you know, in therapy trying to figure out all the things that I learned. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, he, he has this, his, you know, one of his popular books is called killing the host oops (laughs) yeah it's about the rise of the financial sector as this sort of parasite on top of the quote-unquote real economy and you know like it is one thing to critique banks as having that function right because they that is the function that they have but when banks and that kind of private extractive zero-sum relation are conflated with public money itself, it leads to this weird place where, you know, basically any funding for anything new in the quote-unquote real economy, it's not going to be productive, right? Things like education or art or, um, you know, media, anything, anything racially coded as Jewish in the past, right? Um, Those things because they're not productive otherwise the private sector would be doing them already they must be things that can only be done by borrowing money right and since they're not productive then that's just going to create bubbles is kind of how the logic goes yeah
0: and you know thinking of michael hudson's uh <laughs> killing the host it's sort of uh, i i can sort of imagine like nosferatu being on the cover of it <laughs> it reminded me of a sort of foray into Weimar cinema that i took in uh, as you referenced in my master's thesis but Mm. um, there's this sense then like coming into this sort of initial period of inflation after the war that there is this sort of shock of freedom to use the words of Siegfried Krakauer who's one of the sort of Frankfurt School thinkers um, friends with Benjamin and Adorno who Mm -hmm. wrote a lot about Weimar culture and then after his fleeing and escape to the United States uh, after the Nazis' takeover of power, he sort of wrote this long retrospective about uh, a sort of, the sort of psychological history of German cinema and how, on his reading, German cinema sort of paved the way for fascism. And so I say this with regards to killing the host, right, in the sense of... Right. The, the sort of corporations in the sort of opium den of QE, as it's imagined, right? <laughs> yeah. This sort of tsunami of money. And I mentioned this because I think it's interesting then to get at the way, like, the ma- the imaginary of the aesthetics of this this addiction is playing out and how it's mapped onto these uh, dog whistles, as you were suggesting, for excess, for, for Jewish, yeah. for queer, for all of these sort of marginal excessive uh imagined excessive identities that debase the biological german currency the german stock right (laughs) Um, yeah and so i'm gonna read now from from caligari to hitler talking about nosferatu which is sort of the the inaugural sort of vampire film, right? In the imaginary of of haunting, in this case, a German host, right, <laughs> um, <laughs> in this big house and is an imagination of a sort of Transylvanian infu- infiltration. Right, It's essentially, you know, and, and a lot of people have written about like Gothic Marxism and then this sort of capital, capital sort of all devouring sort of vampiric structures, right? And what we're suggesting is that this is very particularly problematic in that it feeds into a misunderstanding of political economy and of culture, and in general of the way culture and political economy interact Mm -hmm. through the production of surplus.
1: Yeah, like let's be clear, like we can have a conception of our political economy right now as being violently exclusive of people planning for people to not be provisioned for at a structural level and and reproducing it alongside the reproduction of you know, the quote-unquote productive parts of the system too, right? Like, we are not saying that we need to move into some kind of an apolitical, you know, sphere, which is what I feel is the kind of caricature of MMT. You know, if you're not talking about extracting surplus value from the worker, right, if you're not talking about the superstructure extracting from the base, then you're not talking about politics and you're not talking about justice, And you're not talking about power and fighting against injustice. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I just want to flag for our listeners in some other episodes, and hopefully we can touch on this in this episode as well. um, But we actually do want to articulate a positive vision of what an MMT informed leftism is that does not rely on these kind of, you know, zero sum extraction by unproductive outsider images that happen to structure anti-semitism and racism and and all of these other things
0: so with that i'm going to read from a couple selections from krakauer now uh just so we can get a sense of how uh, cultural theorists think and talk about these aesthetics and how we can then map them onto the way people talk about inflation right as this sort of infiltration like vice of blood sucking that becomes addictive right Uh, krakauer writes this early film, moreover, testifies to the director's faculty of obliterating the boundaries between the real and the unreal, right? what we could call mm. the base and the superstructure. <laughs> right. Reality in his films was surrounded by a halo of dreams and presentiments, and a tangible person might suddenly impress the audience as a mere apparition. And so we get this sense of not being able to trust... That which is mere apparition, mere superstructure, which is culturally effervescent rather than sort of inscribed into the base as a structure of production. Mm-hmm. So Nosferatu is a scourge of God and only as such identifiable with pestilence. He is a bloodthirsty, bloodsucking tyrant figure looming in those regions where myths and fairy tales meet. It is highly significant that during this period, the German imagination, regardless of its starting point, always gravitated towards such figures, as if under the compulsion of hate-love. And so what we're trying to suggest here in thinking through what this sort of Nosferatu figure and then you know, without really essentializing Krakauer's reading, which I think I would find problematic in in multiple ways, is just to try and communicate the way this sort of haunting, blood-sucking imagery is very present in this moment. And it's one that gets covered over later on, but never fully goes away in sort of the transition from a sort of European pre-war to an American post-war imaginary around inflation. And to drive the point home... Um, I'm going to read from another section where Krakauer is talking about a film representation in Weimar of Cinderella. Mm. And so he writes, While inflation grew all devouring and political passion was at its height, these films, he means the sort of romantic films of like Cinderella, mm-hmm. provided the illusion of a never never land in which the poor sales girl triumphs over the conniving queen. And the kind fairy godmother helped Cinderella win Prince Charming. It was, of course, enjoyable to forget harsh reality in tender daydreams, and Cinderella in particular satisfied the longing for, quote, serenity and light play, unquote, by concocting, with the aid of specific cinematic devices, a sweet mixture of human affairs and supernatural miracles. However, this never, never land was not beyond the range of politics. And so what we have here is this articulation of as inflation, as this sort of never land, right? To reference Peter Pan
1: mm-hmm.
0: of inflation, the sort of swirling, all devouring, externally enforced suffering of the highest excesses of printing money, of cultural degeneracy, mm-hmm. of External force, whether it is from Transylvania or from the allied forces, right? If we're thinking in the sort of fascist imaginary, right. grows all devouring. You know, Krakauer is suggesting that people wanted to lose themselves in the sort of surface nature of romantic comedies and like, you know, maybe Twitter jokes and memes and all these things. But really, all of these memes, all of these things are ultimately within politics and within this conception of the productive base where all true relations of reality are operating. And so it's in this imaginary that we get sort of a negative reflection of what those like Parenti are offering as mm. as as money, as this sort of tsunami of vice is precisely what the films are for Krakauer, right? It's this sort of, Distraction and tsunami of vice that is a never, never land. It's like doubly not the base. Um,
1: You brought up Twitter, but just to spell that out for listeners, I think what you're getting at with that is, you know, these these tropes and, you know, it's fine to do Twitter to kind of numb the pain or something, but you shouldn't confuse that for real politics, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that Twitter is this, you know, kind of never-never land, right? Because it's communication, it's signification, it's signal boosting. It's it's all of these things that are superstructure as opposed to productive. And so, you know, you end up getting chastised for, you know, not spending the time that you're spending on Twitter, phone banking instead, or doing this kind of mindless, hard grind that that politics and real productive working class labor should be directed towards.
0: You know, it could be interesting then to see how this maps directly onto critiques of MMT. I mean we we already mentioned Henwood, but mm. um I think it could be useful to read what he has to say about inflation then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Henwood says when the printing presses run freely, it's not only reactionaries who think that runs the risk of spiraling prices. As I was researching this piece, many people to whom I described MMT, from Democrats to Marxists, brought it up as a worry. MMTers are coy about the topic. They never say how much is too much, and they profess great confidence in their ability to control it. In a paper criticizing MMT, the left Keynesian economist Thomas Pally says he's heard a leading MMTer say inflation less than 40% is costless. That's nearly three times the modern U.S. record of just under 15% in 1980, which was widely regarded, and not just by bondholders, as a crisis. Since wages typically lag behind price changes, inflations can lead to real declines in living standards. Though it might scandalize some liberals to say so, it's dangerous to be sanguine about inflation. People find it destabilizing and it feeds a hunger for order. What this makes me think of, honestly, is like it's a very kind of concern trolly thing. It reminds me a lot of the Angela Nagel yep. red brown Marxist, essentially crypto fascist, I'll just say. <laughs> replace inflation here with tumblr degeneracy yeah or like with all of these examples of social justice run amok she's worried about the rise of the alt-right but for her it's essentially this cultural debasement that she sees as as henwood says destabilizing and feeding a hunger for order and then, of course, there's also, you know, though it might scandalize some liberals to say so, you know, posturing as this kind of brave truth teller. Who knew that Doug Henwood was a crack hour scholar, <laughs> right?
0: Like, oh, the, the inflation of both the cinematic inflation of apparitional technique and blah, blah, blah creates fascism. Well, um, yeah, it's basically the same argument. And. It's funny because, like, I think this all becomes quite clear if you take it out of this sort of kind of abstracted Jacobin thought brain um, Mm -hmm. and actually think, like, about history and historically, like, the American experience of inflation and its imaginaries, of course, the stagflation crisis, right, of the 1970s. And anyone who pays attention to uh, David Stein's work, who is a historian at UCLA, knows very precisely that inflation is essentially code for surplus population in the United States, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, we have to fight inflation, which means we have to fight inclusion of black people yeah. in the productive process. And that literally like manifests in things like the Phillips curve, right? For those who don't know, right? There's the imagination that the, as the unemployment rate goes down, there's like a one-to-one curve that insists that inflation and prices will go up so literally as you include more people you get more inflation and more destabilization and de facto like full employment produces fascism is essentially the argument that Henwood is making
1: yeah and he's doing a concern trolling version of it is he gonna come out and say which things are going to be inflationary for us to print money to pay people to do right I mean maybe if you know you gave him a few drinks he would he would say that it's you know all of this you know humanities scholarship and stuff is unproductive and is the sign of a kind of an economic degeneracy at the level of our political economy and
0: ultimately like what's so obvious about this is like the goal or the the like eschatology of this structure of thinking about concern trolling about inflation is always going to be and this is something that we said in the very first episode of superstructure right you can't out exclude fascists Yeah, You're not going to be able to out exclude them. And so what they are going to say is, okay, you're right. We can't have full employment without inflation. So you know what? We're going to have stable money and excise this surplus of the population so that literally in the sense Mm -hmm. of genocide, they are removed from the structure of political economy, from society as such. And so we don't have to worry about inflation because we can have full employment, but only for this sort of ethno-nationalist
1: substance. And, you know, people like Doug Henwood who, and to be clear, we are critiquing where we see the logics of this kind of what he calls sound finance socialism, you know, leading to. They're,
0: they're, They're not fascist. It's the logics
1: and we're giving them a hard time. Right. We're giving them a hard time because if you tell people that their interests are different to the majority right? And the way that their interests are going to be provisioned anyway, is if we convince the majority to do the right thing and make a little bit of sacrifice in order to include everybody. I mean, it's misleading, right? In that nobody's existence comes inherently at the expense of anyone else's existence, which is what this is saying. But it also is, you know, it's politically, it's a very weak argument. That's what is so dangerous about the marxist denunciation of creating money what mmt would call creating jobs
0: what it does is it attempts to generalize and integrate specific struggles for the creation of money Mm -hmm. specifically like in the united states for example the long history of black struggles for democratic uh engagement with the creation of money and of the employment structures and like the march on washington and the freedom budget and like this is all in david stein's work right it -hmm. takes these specific radical and from the perspective of a minoritarian struggle and it attempts to universalize it on the terms of a sort of generalized sound struggle for finite resources Mm -hmm. like i mean this in both metaphorical and then all of the potent ways it is implies it essentially is a like all class struggles matter <laughs> right structure and logic whereby it universalizes any particular claim for access to the superstructure as a productive and abundant structure of inclusion onto the terms of the imagined to be normal workers like site of work or the sort of normal structures for socialism, and maybe it's an English, a Northern English coal mining worker, right? Like, right. Or wh- Whatever it is, it doesn't allow for us for any sense of surplus or excess, as it would be th- thought of in a sort of inflationary sense. Right. As, as difference, as different particular radical claims to monetary inclusion.
1: Right. That people have particular needs that are different from the majority of the working class. The idea that those are needs, they think is a bourgeois plot, basically, <laughs> yeah. to, to distract, right? The only thing that difference can do in this crude Marxism is divide up the working class. Right. And the only thing that can unite the working class is the struggle for, quote unquote, universal goods Mm -hmm. imagined as this kind of common denominator housing or common denominator health care that everybody should get to have. Um, And, you know, I mean, we, we talked about in a couple episodes ago the bellows part 2 you know we picked apart this example of somebody that we saw um on twitter responding to another podcast episode that we did counterposing gender reassignment surgeries from regular surgeries quote unquote the idea that there is some kind of a common denominator healthcare that transgender healthcare is on the outside of and is siphoning money from, and it's superfluous and not important to the majority of the working class. And therefore, it's not part of a working class program. And ultimately, as we picked that apart, the idea that, you know, there's no healthcare service or operation or something that everyone in the world needs at one time, right? The the idea that healthcare is an undifferentiated good. Really, that's just coding and dog whistling for, you know, a normal person who deserves to be provisioned for, as opposed to superstructure, right? That's right. That is not part of the base. We
0: need to provision for the Saxon man, right? I mean, literally, that's, (laughs) I mean, that's the understanding, that's what's being articulated here. And so, yeah, I mean, like, coming full circle, of course, in the end... This sort of sound finance socialism that's trying to hold out for a fight over the infinity sign because Doug Henwood is like, well, it's not just reactionaries uh, who want to stop inflation. I also do. Um, <laughs> right? It, Which is, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is ultimately uh, a facile endeavor because what do fascists do? And like, Fascists just open up the tap of the infinity sign mm-hmm. when it comes to money, right like and they produce these sort of mythic structures of exclusion through public money, and so like the point is is to fight fascism with every tool we have and not defer to their logics while saying we are trying to fight against what ultimately they are going to do, which is Print money, right? Like I mean that that makes no sense. Um, and so, like I, I wanted to flag as well before we we concluded a conversation we um, I had on money on the left as well as my fellow co host with Nathan Tankus on inflation and the politics of pricing, where we get into some of some of this as well. But also to say that it is incredibly important to understand the linkages between the fascist experience in europe Mm -hmm. and the anti-fascist experience of america as the precursor to the civil rights movement in the sense that black people saw that more was possible with regards to inclusion even if the structures of production were actively segregating and discriminatory the opening up of the tap so-called of war spending for the fighting of fascism right is exactly what afforded and Coretta Scott King says this herself the imaginary of a burgeoning radical civil rights movement that aimed to actively cultivate not just like what you know some reductive leftists would call like human rights and the right to vote and like equality but actually like economic rights and and the full employment mandate and at the fed and the job guarantee and all of these structures that are still on the table today and are still desperately needed in the struggle for both the rights of black people in the united states but also for the rights of everyone and because ultimately, like, the whole normal people and normal worker facade is a way of excluding black people from the struggle. But what the Black Lives Matter movement shows is that the movement for black rights, while very particularly oriented around the sufferings of black people that are unique and just awful and historically situated in centuries of genocide and brutality, there, it's also the site for the struggle for everyone right because inclusion and particularity of experience is also a struggle for every single particular difference that any individual represents and that is why then identity is so crucial in this structure of superstructural struggle for cultivating a sort of mmt rejection of sound identity sound finance sound sexuality socialism As